If you knew, thank you so much for being here. I'm very excited to, to share with you. Uh, today's service is a blast. It's, 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 kind of a, it's kind of really reflective, and for some people, it has, it has been healthy, but rather difficult. So I say that because it seems in our congregation that we do better when we know what's coming. So I'm just letting you know, today is going to smack you right in the heart, I think. Um, and, and I think it should, but it's only going to affect you as much as you let it. So those of you who've decided already, not interested in developing myself, not interested in growing, not interested in, in being more whole or healthy, you're going to be fine, right? <laughs> Just go through muted like you do in so many other areas. But for those of you, for those of you who, for those of you, <laughs> you're like, oh, I didn't like that. If I had my heart turned on right now, I'd be very offended. <laughs> but since my heart's turned off. I thought it was hilarious. Uh, uh, the reality is that today is going to impact you as much as you let it. And, and that's really so much about how uh, our church works and how this community behaves. And my prayer and hope is that you let it, that you let the Holy Spirit just, just have his way and, and awaken some stuff in your life and have it impact you. Don't let it just be another uh, wasted half hour on, on thinking about all the things you have to do next week or all the worries you have. Really take, take some time. Think about you and think about how you relate to this, this God who made you and wrestle with it and see what he does. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, so let's pray and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you um, that you are the only agenda we care about, that you are the only plan that we care about. And that, Lord, you are, uh, you are just doing incredible things within our community because you care so much about us. I thank you for these people, Lord. I thank you for the way you're going to move. We just lift it up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 8. We are going to rip through some super cool passages today, but we are going to do it um, in such a way that if you're not paying attention and if you're not tracking you may need to go back and listen to the podcast because I am not going to let up at all. So here in just a second, I'm going to get started. And then I'm going to use um, some, some actual illustrations up here because of how much I'm going to give you. But I think as the weight of the scripture and the spirit of the scripture piles upon you, I think eventually that that in and of itself is what has an impact to bring revelation and realization to you and whatever situation you're in, whether you're visiting, whether you're a longtime member, whether you're a, an anti-church person and you're just here because the girl wanted to bring you halfway decent looking. I don't know why you're here, but, but either way, uh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to introduce you through uh, a teaching tool I've not done a lot, but I think will be really helpful. Uh, the church right now is about to undergo incredible amounts of persecution in this passage. Uh, chapter 8 is when the true persecution of the church begins, and a lot of it is Stephen's fault. Stephen from last week uh, decided to follow God, obey him, and became this incredible martyr for God. He became like this, this symbol of what it meant to be a Christian. And so his stoning became a watershed moment in the life of the church and in the progression of God's plan. All throughout Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, where Pentecost had fallen, God is moving, people are coming to him. And so persecution immensely begins to accumulate all throughout the city. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul, who was the young man whose clothing from the men who stoned Stephen, their, his feet were where the men laid their clothing. And Saul approved of his, Stephen's execution. 
And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, this persecution, one of the reasons this persecution is so incredibly significant is because this is the only persecution in the history of the church that actually had a chance to wipe the church out. Think about that for a second. Jesus came to Jerusalem. His message was in Jerusalem. He was crucified there. He rose from the dead there. Everybody who knew about the message was there. Satan, the forces of evil, the government, the world, everything that would have been focused on stopping this movement would have brought all that it possibly could to this city. For if you could destroy the Christians within it, the message would be lost forever. We'd never be here today. So the level and depth and layers of persecution that are going on here are... are incredibly um, um, deep and heavy shared within those three verses. And Saul is at the forefront of it. It actually uses the word ravages. Have you ever seen something get ravaged? It's not, it's not a death. It's not a kill. It's a complete enjoyed destruction. And that's what was going on in this church. And the church didn't know what to do, and so it left, which is exactly what God wanted to happen. One theologian said, tracing the history of the church from this point on in the book of Acts is like following a wounded deer through freshly fallen snow. These people are leaving wounded. These people are leaving scattered. These people are going all, all, all over the earth and they're being led by the spirit to do so. Now, I want to talk for a minute about Saul because this is a really important first thing that we're about to see because what you're going to meet right here in the Inside the persecution of the church are three common examples of the human heart. The first one is a religious heart. Saul has a religious heart. And this is incredible to think about, but everything Saul did, Saul did for God. Everything Saul did, Saul did for God. He did for the sake of holiness. He did for the sake of the protection of his people, so he thought. See, not only was this messing up the movement of the church, but it was messing up the political movement of the city. The Romans who had conquered Israel were okay with the Jews and the way in which they conducted church, as long as they didn't mess up anything that was important to the Romans. And now you've got Stephen saying, oh, by the way, there's a new king in town. His name is Jesus. Oh, by the way, there's a new priest in town. His name is Jesus. You've got, you've got both uh, the Roman rulers and the church rulers now fairly frustrated with you. And so Saul is trying to shut down this movement, not only to keep his church intact that has existed for all these years, based on, by the way, the Old Testament, based on Scripture. He is ravaging God's church based on Scripture. And he has another whole agenda, which is it doesn't make any sense. Why upset the Romans? Why are we trying to say words like king and priest? Why are we using these words? Use other words. You are messing up what we have here. You're messing up the way we do things. This first heart that you see in the church is a heart of religion. And it's a really, really difficult heart to recognize because it always comes packaged in verses and sermons. It always comes packaged in verses and sermons. And it comes with, with phrases like, you're supposed to, and I think, and don't you know, it actually comes more with a tone than anything else. 
And it's a tone of, one day you'll realize just how blessed you are to be hearing from me. Yeah, you know those people now, don't you? You're like, oh, Aunt Gertrude. That's who he's talking about right now. He's talking about Aunt Gertrude. Religious hearts are hard to decipher. This is one reason why I continue to try to to pour into Kesson, this congregation, because it's silly to think you'll stay at this one church forever, but question every guy on stage. Question every woman on stage. Question everything they have to say and do it in a way that, that... that is helpful. Do it in a way that, 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 that makes sense, but question. Question what people have to say, because the reality is all religious hearts come packaged in scripture and sermons. That's what they do. That's what Saul did. It says, though, within this persecution, another heart arose, and his name was Philip. And Philip didn't have a religious heart. Philip, he had a righteous heart. Philip had a heart willing to go wherever God sent him and willing to be obedient to the call of God. That's the real definition of righteousness. Probably the most difficult thing people misunderstand about righteousness is that, it's, uh, is that uh, it comes from something you do instead of something you are. See, it's, it's really hard to do obedience, especially if your heart inside is just, have you ever had a, a kid, one of your children do something and you knew in their hearts they weren't doing it, but they did it anyways? That's not really the kind of obedience that, that I like in my home. I'm, I'm more wanting my children to to participate in the relationship and understand. They don't have to agree with it all, but at the end of the day, they're obedient because of the relationship we have with each other. They're not obedient in order to prove me wrong one day. This kind of righteousness really is tied to obedience so specifically, and in many of your lives, I'm going to be gentle about this, but what I mean behind it is much more serious. Um, You need to work on your discipline skills because you aren't very obedient. Now, I don't mean to say that in a childlike way to you because it should be said to me as well. But at the end of the day, many, many times, I just cross my arms and go, my arms and go, I don't want to. Now, I don't stand like that because I realize I look like I'm six years old and I'm pouting. But I stand like that in my heart. For sure. I know when I'm crossing my arms and pouting. And I've gotten better because at this age, it looks really silly when you pout at, the, at 40 you know, but uh, at this age, I, I've gotten better at not appearing to pout, but I must tell you, and my wife's great at calling this out of me, I pout all the time. I get frustrated all the time. I don't want to do stuff just because I don't want to. Not, I have no good reason. I just don't want to. It makes no sense. But to God, it clearly does. To God, it clearly does. He calls Philip And he says, I want you to go, Acts 8, 4, and 5. This is right after the persecution begins. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now you need to read this with the tone I want to think it was written in, which was like people went all over the world for Jesus. I mean, people got in boats and they went to Rome and they did this and they did this. And Philip, remember that? Philip went to Samaria. Like, what? What? Why is he going to Samaria? Now, to you and me, that means nothing. But I want to explain something to you. Because to the church at the time, it was the last place they possibly would want to go. But Philip felt that's where God wanted him, so he went. But here's, here's why. little tiny history on the reason why the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. Originally, as we know, the nation of Israel was broken into 12 tribes. 
When Solomon's son came to reign, 10 of those tribes in the northern portion of the nation decided they didn't want to be a part of that reign anymore, the rightful heir to the king, the king that God had placed, and they wanted to form their own king. And so they, the 10 tribes separated from the other two tribes and called themselves Israel. We, they said, we're now Israel. And the two remaining tribes, the tribes of Benjamin and Judah, they became Judah. So these two warring tribes throughout the Old Testament, the, 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 the untrue nation of Israel, right, and the true remaining remnant of Israel, Benjamin and Judah, had wars with each other until eventually both of them became overwhelmed by opposing enemies. The northern tribe became, became overwhelmed by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians, in order to dilute the blood of the northern tribe, bred them out of existence, eventually causing a creation of a nation known as Samaria. The Jews from the, or Judah, from the lower tribe, the remnant, under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, do you remember they came back and they built the wall and they were the small remnant nation? They were all that was left of the true people of God. They came back to a land filled with what they called half-breeds. And they began a war with them of which God was with the now Jewish people and gave them back the nation and gave them back the city. From then on, all Jewish people hated the diluted blood of the Samaritans. They were filthy. They were gross. They were the last people. We would rather go to pagan cities than go to the kind of Jewish Samaritan people. So then it says, under persecution, everybody goes. And Philip, he's like, I got Samaria. Philip, he's like, I'll be back. You, what? Did he just, did he just say he's going to Samaria? Yeah. Philip, yeah, I'll be good. I'm going to Samaria. Philip doesn't know any better, and he's obedient, and he wants to share God's word, and he apparently doesn't seem to really care, and it messes everything up because the church gets kind of sloppy like this sometimes. Philip goes down into Samaria, and guess what God does because God loves this stuff. He's like, mm, I'm with him. Have you ever experienced that? Like, like it, it all makes sense. We're going we're gonna to do this, and this makes sense. And then one guy's like, mm, I'm feeling led to do this. And God's like, I'm with that guy. That's, that's what happens here. Listen to what it's described with Philip. He's not even one of the cool apostles, right? He's just, he's just Philip. Phil. Verse 6. And the crowds with one accord, listen, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did. And suddenly, listen to what this dude is doing in Samaria. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many, many, by the way, many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Philip just started healing everybody. He's like... You're healed. You're healed. No more demons for you. You're healed. People are like just, they want to be a part of this guy's movement. And it's incredible. So much so that the local magician comes to Philip to, to try to understand what happens. And this man is the last heart we're going to see, for he has a wicked heart. Verse 9, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest. This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, 
As he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Simon is a man of agenda. Simon is a man who is, we're about to find out, sees profit in the movement of Philip. He sees that this man's signs are bigger than his, therefore his apples are selling better than my apples, therefore I'll go over and learn how to grow his apples. And so he says he believes and begins to follow Philip around to try to understand what it is he's doing and why it is that it's working. So this is what's so beautiful about this at this time. At this time, we get a true picture now of all of us within our lives and how we float in between some of these hearts. Because we were just introduced in 26 verses to three different hearts that were made known through persecution of the church. So this is kind of a group of people. It's showing you a group of people that are being sent out into the world. People who are religious, people who are righteous, and people who are wicked. All of them, by the way, clothed at this point in the in the, uh, in the gowns of the church. At this point right now, Saul still thinks he's for the church. Philip is for the new church, healing everybody. And this dude just became baptized. This is the church right now. According to this passage, all of these people are out doing God's work. But two of these things don't fit. One of these things is unlike the others. <laughs> Now, this is important for you to understand because you may be right now deciding which one you are. Most of you would probably pick righteous. A few of you might go religious. Hardly anybody in here is like, I'm definitely wicked. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> I love magic, right? That's not, that's, that's not what's happening. That's not what's happening. What should be happening is you should be like I am and have been evaluating which areas in my life are filtered through these things. Because I'm here to tell you right now, preaching this sermon, as I represent the church to you, I've got some wicked stuff in my life. I've got some religious stuff in my life, and I've got some righteous stuff in my life. And my wicked stuff has, has decreased every year that God has exposed it to me. I've got stuff in my life that's wicked I don't even know about yet. There's verses on that. I can give them to you later. Where it's like, I don't even know God. I don't even know what I don't know, but I know that I know that I've got some of that, right? I know for a fact I switched to religion all the time. I was at the Blazer game recently with my friend. If you've been to a Blazer game recently, and I'm sorry if this guy's your cousin because I'm usually careful about calling stuff out, but there's a bro down at the Blazer game with a megaphone preaching, right? Not so good stuff to crowds of people. And I go down and I look at this guy and I'm sitting down there and I'm like, this is not cool. Like, that's what I do. And he's doing it here in this context and just condemnation, condemnation, condemnation. Five blocks away, four or five blocks away, uh, my friend and I are walking and you can hear people talking about, oh, he's here again. What's that guy doing here? Why is he here? There's a huge religious spirit as you come up around him. And so I'm, I'm looking at him and I'm like, bro, I don't understand that I want to say through my religious spirit, I need a megaphone. Let's have a preach off. Let's see where this goes because this is crazy. You preach to them and I'll preach to you, right? And we'll just see how it goes. And I could just feel like my heart, it was so not Jesus, right? Like my heart was beating. It was like I was about to get in a spiritual fist fight. I was like, oh, okay. All right. All right. All right. Right? Like it was, if I was a woman, right, I'd start braiding my hair. I'd be like, no, nope, we're not doing this. 
this is not happening today. Right? Like, I was just so frustrated. I was so frustrated. And I, I, I ended up just kind of being quiet. And I just walked in with my friend. And, and on the way out, I was really looking for him. Like, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Right? And he wasn't there. And I was like, man. And, and, I, and I know that it's religious. And I know that as Christians, even full of righteous hearts, we do this. I know it because this next verse is an example of us doing it. Verse 14. This is after Simon's been baptized. Philip's performing miracles. Saul sills ravaging the church. Verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem, who were left behind, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now this is so, so valuable. So valuable. You have Peter who is the rock of the church, the fisherman who God decides to use to do this incredible thing. And through Pentecost, God has anointed Peter as this voice, as this leader of the apostles. And all of a sudden, Peter loses one of his own, Philip, who's like, I'm going to Samaria. And he's like, Philip, Philip. And he's like, I'm out. And he's like, oh. Did anybody say Philip could go to Samaria? We need some leadership in this place, right? First, we're not feeding widows, and now we've got Philip in Samaria. It's just unbelievable. So letters come back, apparently, that say Philip is healing people in Samaria. You swear to me he's healing people? Oh, it's unbelievable. Demons are being cast out. People paralyzed are walking. I mean, he's going crazy. He's just healing anybody who wants to be healed. And they're like, no way. There's no way that God is moving in Samaria like he moved in Jerusalem. This is impossible. And so what do they do? They go down to check it out themselves. Because they just can't see that God would do that. They were Jewish people. Those are, those are half-blood wannabe. Why would God? They don't, they don't even go to the same church as us. They're nowhere near as hip and cool as us, and they have a whole different worldview. Did he work on their worldview? Did he talk to them about the worldview before he healed them? Why is God doing this? And so they go down, and when they go down, it says that they laid their hands on them, and the Spirit fell. I read this about this passage. God didn't bring the apostles to Samaria to be the ones to bestow the Holy Spirit, but to witness the Samaritans receiving the Holy Spirit. The Lord delayed the falling of the Holy Spirit for the apostles' benefit to assure them that he had accepted the Samaritans' belief and had made them full-fledged brothers and sisters in the kingdom. Even Peter and John had religious spirits. They're like, there's no way God's moving there. They go down. Philip probably meets them at the gate, you know, with a paralyzed guy. Hey, watch this. Ha! Unbelievable, right? Bring another one. I mean, it's incredible. It's just incredible. He's out of control, right? Philip, you cannot heal everybody. They're like, oh, yeah, I can. Watch. Whole neighborhood. People just start popping out of windows. This is crazy. Bring them all together. They bring them all together, right? They bring them all together. And Peter is the father, right? Fatherhood. He says, God, if these people are yours, then, then Holy Spirit, make it known. And the Holy Spirit falls like Pentecost in Samaria. Don't you think there, what, what do you think Philip's face was? Do you think maybe he was in the back like, hmm? <laughs> just a little bit, Peter, as, as people are just 
literally, you know, speaking in tongues and fire. And I mean, it's just this amazing falling of the Holy Spirit. And you see Philip in the back, you know, just like, eh, just obedient. <laughs> heal another one. Guy walks up, he's like, heal. He's like, ah, Philip. It's just, it's just an amazing example. But here's what happens when this movement happens. When Peter's religious spirit gets brought back to righteousness, here's what happens. Simon the magician creeps back in. Verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. So he thought that Peter and John had a gift or an ability or a talent, and he offered to buy it. Verse 19, saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, if you have your own Bible, underline that phrase, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven forgiven you for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity and Simon answered pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me that phrase uh, if possible is a really important part of this passage Uh, in our modern day English impossible actually means I don't know if you realize this but when you're saying if possible you're actually saying at a root core basis for the meaning less than 50 50 chance I'm gonna, I have two gallons of gas. I have to make it this many miles. I'll get there if possible. What you're saying is I don't know if I can. I don't think I can, but I'll try. I don't think I can, but I'll try. That's not the verbiage and the phrase that's being used here in the Greek. When Peter is saying if possible, the word and idea he's actually using means uh, near certainty if an effort is made. Near certainty if an effort is made. When he says to Simon, you need to put away this way of being, this wicked way of being, and reach out for God, he's saying it's near certain that if you come before God with your wickedness, with your religion, and you reach out to him, he will come and he will meet you. It's almost the exact same phrase just used a little bit later in Acts 17, 27, when Paul told the Athenians that God created people for relationship with him. So, I'll put this up, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Both this phrase here and the one that Peter used earlier with Simon imply that seeking God almost certainly results in finding him. So he is actually speaking encouragement to this wicked heart, but he's speaking it in such a way that that heart will hear it. And so let me just say a few things to those of you in this room who are wrestling with wickedness in areas of your life. If you don't stop, and if you don't obey, and this goes to the areas in my life as well, so I'm in this with you, eventually destruction will be your prophets. Everything that you think you're building will all go away if it's built from a motive or a place of wickedness. All of it. God promises it. I have an entire book about it. It is powerful and it is real and it's time that some of you shed, and I mean shed, that lifestyle, those secrets, and that way of being. And that goes, by the way, for those of you in the room who think, well, good thing I don't have any wickedness. All I do is pray all day for these loser people. (laughs) I got a card for you, right? I got a card for you. If you think you have no wickedness in your life, you can't think of a thing, that's your card. Okay? 
If you think that you are, that you are uh, uh, only full of wickedness, that's also not true. That's shame. That's not, that's not the spirit. I have a card for you. If you think that you are full of both wicked and righteousness and religiousness and that God is still sifting and growing and developing you, then friends, welcome to the obedience track where every once in a while you're going to get to a place where you go, I just don't want to, but I will. I think Philip probably had his own internal wrestling. I just don't think he told anybody. He was like, what? And God's like, Samaria, you and me, Thursday. And he's like, nah, Samaria, Thursday. I want to go with Peter. He's doing really cool stuff. Samaria, all right. I hope we get to do cool stuff. Oh, Philip, you have no idea. See, I don't think you have any idea what God could do with your life if you're willing just to obey him, if you're willing to see these areas, to own these areas, to sift and be a part of discussion in these areas. But what it takes is you believing that God's word is real and what it takes is you and I believing that God's cross is strong enough and big enough. I don't, I'm still wrestling with, and maybe it's because I have such a high view of the cross, so many people that have such a hard time admitting their own brokenness and sin. But I have such a high view of the cross that when you ask me, have you ever done this? Have you ever done that? Are you, do you wrestle with this? You, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Because I have such a high view of the cross. If you have a little tiny cross, as a matter of fact, the only cross you actually think about is the one around your neck, you might be struggling with self-reliance. You might be struggling with, with a reality that, um, spiritually speaking especially, is just it's just not powerful enough to overcome the stuff in your life. So keep convincing yourself that you're doing good work. But I'm here to tell you the only one who does really good work is the one who does good work within me when I recognize the areas in my life I need sifted. I need filtered. I need processed. I need evaluated. Communion. We're going to take it today. I want to read to you the usual communion verse, and then I want to read to you the rest of the communion verse. The usual communion verse says this, and it's valid and it's powerful. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is called a sacrament. The other one is baptism. We do these two things on a regular basis. We do communion about once a month, and we do the baptism a couple times a year. We have one the week after Easter. For anyone in here that wants to be baptized or any of the new converts that we're going to see that God is going to save that Easter weekend. We're gonna do, it's going to be an awesome Easter worship service down at the Main Street building. It's going to be incredible. But we take communion based on this verse partaking in the uh, juice or the uh, wine and partaking are the bread and the cracker and remembering the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. We do this to be part, to consume and be part because God has, has taken us within himself. And so this is a symbol of taking uh, him within us and being in relationship fully and connected. But the very next verse says this, in reference to the hearts that we all carry within us. Verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the, bread of, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. 
See, this sacrament is supposed to be uh, uh, prefaced by a time of examining, a time of, of connecting and wrestling through the different areas in my life that are strong or weak or that the Lord wants to highlight to me. This is what we're supposed to be sifting. These first hearts that, are, uh, that appear in this first chapter of persecution as the church is spread out. For all of them thought they were the church, but only one was really filled. What you think your life is about without the Holy Spirit, it's all you, and it will all fade. Whatever is in my life that is not led by the Holy Spirit is all me and will all fade. And so today what I want to do before we move into this time of communion is give you a chance to be examined. I want to give you a chance to, to process your stuff with yourself and the Holy Spirit. And so I'm going to read a psalm over you, and then we're going to take just a moment and reflect upon that, and then we're going to move into a time of communion uh, towards the end. We have plenty of time, uh, and it's just, it's so far every single service, um, it, it has just been super powerful and super spirit releasing. And so I ask right now, and I pray right now, that what you're about to experience would be unlike anything you've ever felt before. So I'm gonna ask everyone's heads to bow, everyone's eyes to close. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where? Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, 
intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. So search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Heavenly Father, Lord, in this room, there is some freedom that needs to be experienced. There is some spiritual awakening that needs to be had. There is contemplation that has never been aroused. There are so many people sitting within so many spaces that it is only you, Holy Spirit, that can meet all of the needs. It is only you that can reflect all of the concerns. It is only you, God, that can see us as we are, coming to you now, desiring to be searched, desiring to be held, desiring to be made whole. And so, Lord, may every person in this room feel the comfort of the comforter. May they feel the forgiveness of the one who gave his life. May they feel the wholeness as their hunger and thirst is quenched in this world. I thank you, God, for the things in my life you've exposed to me. And I ask, Lord, that in this room we would all be able to journey toward you with arms and eyes lifted up. Thank you, Father. Amen. devoted like a ring of solid gold like a vow that is tested like a covenant of old and your love is enduring through the winter rain and beyond the horizon with mercy for today Yourself for me 
And it's why I sing Jesus, Jesus You make the darkness tremble Jesus, Jesus You silence fear Jesus, Jesus You make the darkness tremble Jesus, Jesus Peace, bringing it all to peace The storm surrounding me Let it break At your name Still Call the sea to still, the rage in me to still, every way at your name. Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. Jesus, Jesus, your silence fear. Jesus, Jesus, you Let's just